And so I join my prayer with theirs and pray that you'd meet with us, Lord, so that we're not learning more information about you, but that we're having an encounter with the living God and our Savior, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Open our hearts and our minds to the riches of your gospel and grace that are stored up for us in this passage. And um, Lord, help us to to understand new things, challenge us where we need to grow, encourage us where we need comfort, and draw us into deeper intimacy with Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to tell you a story about my kids, and I'm telling you that it's about other kids than the ones that are here with me. Um, So I'm not throwing my little kids under the bus. We have three young adult kids who are still back in California. And when they were little, um, they had, in addition to a bedtime, they had a wake-up time. And if you're a parent of a kid who's gotten to a certain age, you'll understand what I am saying when I say, you know, you can't get out of bed until 7 o'clock. Like, cannot do it. And so the way that we enforced this or helped them learn this when they were young was we would take a digital clock and we would put... a a piece of like painter's tape over the minutes number so that all you could see was the hours. And we told them when that number is seven, then you can wake up. And it worked pretty well overall, but every once in a while you'd have an early riser and the number would still be six and you'd hear someone call through the house, dad, mom. And so you'd go in there and it's like, buddy, what's What's wrong? Are you sick? No. Are you scared? Did you have a bad dream? No. Okay, well, what is it? Well, Dad, the clock won't ever say seven. (laughs) I'm waiting, but the right time won't come. Now, that's a simple, childlike experience of something that is actually deeply human. It's a part of what it means to be a a human person, Um, and that is the sense of waiting, of uncertainty. Um, You know, think about COVID and the season, especially two years ago when it had just started and we had no idea what was going on or how long it was going to take. All we knew is that we couldn't go to worship, we couldn't go to work, people were dying and getting sick. Um, and we were, we were stuck in this sort of existential void. And I, I think that back then, if you had told everyone, look, this is going to take six months. It's going to be really hard, but that's what it's going to be. It's going to be six months. We would have all been like, okay, well, that's no good, but we can deal with that. But we didn't know if it was going to be six months, and we didn't know if it was going to be two years. And we're on the other side of it now, but I bet you all remember that sense of just uncertainty where time seemed to have lost its meaning because we were waiting. That's what it means to be an embodied human, to live in space and time. It means to wait. And so many of our longings and so many of our desires and so many of our fears are, are, are bound up in this, in this uncertainty, in this waiting. So I'm going to ask you all to think, I'm going to return to this later, but just think how you would answer this question. What are you waiting for? 
How would, you, how, would you, how would you fill in the blank? If only what? Then things would be okay. If only. What's your if only? It's fearful, isn't it? It's uncertain, right? To fear that the time will never come, that the clock will never say seven. Well, I, I give you that introduction because Mark chapter five is a, is a story from the life of Jesus that is all about waiting. It's about people waiting in very different circumstances. And it's a story about Jesus um, bringing hope into that uncertainty and that fear and that doubt. Um, and so I'm gonna just examine uh, two things this morning. Uh, two, two, big, two big things that this shows us about what it means to wait as we trust in Jesus. The first is what I'm ca- calling cr- waiting in a crisis. So crisis waiting. And then the second one is um, chronic waiting. Waiting when things have just settled in. So uh, first, uh, cr- crisis waiting. Um, and here's the, here's the context. When I... The verse, verse 21 starts with the word and. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again. I used to have a, when I was in um, law school a long, long time ago, I had a professor who every single class would walk in and the first words out of his mouth were, and so. And then he would launch into the day's lecture. And one day we asked him, like, why do you do that? Why do you start the word? Why do you start every class with, and so? And he said, I want you all to begin to understand that this stuff is all connected. That these are not just random things I'm talking about on different days, but there's actually an integrated purpose to this. And that's what's going on here. Um, and locates us in the middle of an ongoing story, an ongoing narrative. And what's going on is Jesus has blown up. He's gone viral. He's gotten very, very popular. He's been doing healings. Um, he's been preaching and teaching. Um, there have been massive demonstrations of God's grace and mercy, um, and, and he's the hot new rabbi in town, holding an impromptu rally. Imagine, um, this is dated a little bit, but when, back when Billy Graham was super popular, if he came into town and kind of commandeered the local high school stadium, people would just show up. And that's what's going on with Jesus. Um, He's popular, he's in, his, he's in demand, and he's got a great crowd gathered beside him by the sea, and he's teaching them when, in verse 22, this, uh, this man Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, um, comes to see him. Now, the leader of the synagogue was an important position in the local Jewish community. He was the, he was the overseer of the... Um, Think of him as the executive director of the synagogue. He wasn't the, he wasn't the priest, uh, but he was in charge of making sure that the, that the synagogue was well-equipped. He was sort of generally over the, getting the right scrolls and readings for the day, making sure the music was arranged for. Um, <coughs> he was kind of in, in charge of the orthodoxy of the synagogue to make sure that everything was on the straight and narrow. And it was a very influential and desirable position. So right away, we know a few things about Jairus. Number one, we know that he is a man of status. He's a man of position. Um, He's he's very likely a man of wealth. Um, He would have been very well connected 
politically and socially to get that job. We also know that he would be, um, he would be incredibly orthodox and r righteous, religiously orthodox. He would be morally upright. He would have been seen as an absolute pillar of the community. Um, so, he, so Jairus has it all. He has wealth, he has status, he has a reputation, he has a great job, um, and none of it matters because his daughter is sick to the point of death. And his comfortable life has been upended and maybe for the first time he's starting to realize what it means to be powerless. Um, that he's facing a crisis that is beyond the reach of his money, that is indifferent to his rank, that is unresponsive to his, to his, his power. Um, he has slammed into the brick wall of of his limits, of his finitude, of the reality that human beings cannot really ultimately control life. He is in a crisis. His daughter is deathly sick, and he is waiting, like a parent who gets a call at 2 a.m. that their child has been involved in an accident, and they rush to the hospital, and they wait, feverishly, doing nothing at a thousand miles an hour while their hearts pound and their minds race to these unthinkable worst case scenarios and the world swirls in a blur and the solution must come now because doesn't God know? Doesn't he care? Some of us have been there. We all know someone who has. And that's Jairus. That's what's going on with him. He's in that kind of a crisis, and he's waiting, but he's heard that Jesus is in town. And he's heard rumors, whispers of miraculous healings that must be from God. And so he allows hope to surge, and he takes a chance, and he, and he goes to Jesus, and he implores him, in verse 23, my daughter is at the point of death. Just come touch her. That's, that's it, Jesus. I know that's all you have to do. All you have to do is touch her. I'm not asking for a big production. I'm just asking you to come to touch her and heal her. And I love verse 24. And he went with him. Has there ever been a shorter proclamation of good news? And he went with him. I wonder if Jairus said, thanks, Jesus, can we hurry? You know he thought it. But you also know he breathed a sigh of relief that he thought in that moment God does know and God does care and he is coming. Which makes what happens next so much more frustrating Right? So put yourself in Jairus' position. You've come to Jesus. You've implored him to bring healing to your little daughter. Jesus has agreed and he's coming when all of a sudden into the surging crowd, a woman quietly drew near. A woman who is the polar opposite of Jairus. There's an intentional contrast being set up here between this woman and, and this ruler of the synagogue. Um, 
So this lady, especially in that culture, was already burdened with a, with a status deficit simply by existing as a woman in, in that society. And life had done her no favors. She had a medical condition that was painful and isolating. Um, it made her ceremonially unclean, which we don't really have anything like that, but they did. She would have been unable uh, to go to worship. She would have been not welcome at the temple or the synagogue. And anyone else who came into contact with her would be similarly ceremonially unclean, and they would be excluded from worship. And so that means that she had essentially lost her community. She had lost her relationships. Um, and so that's her, that's her plight. Here's this, here's this woman in chronic pain with no church and no relationships and no community and no family. This lady is very likely a widow. And, and, and she's in financial ruin. Verse 26 says that she, had, that, that she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had. One commentator says that the, that the cure was more costly than the disease for her. She had spent herself into poverty. And her hemorrhaging body was a daily reminder of what Jairus was experiencing, that we ultimately cannot control all the things in life. So, you see the setup. He is a symbol of prosperous thriving, interrupted by a crisis, waiting in urgency. She is an avatar of this multi-layered chronic brokenness, just living a slow-motion collapse of her body and her spirit, her life. And she was waiting. But this is why I say that she is not in crisis waiting. She's in chronic waiting. This has been going on for 12 years. She's, she's exhausted like someone who's running a marathon and all of a sudden realizes they're on a treadmill and they haven't made any progress and they're about to collapse. But it says she too has heard of Jesus. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And so she decides that she needs the same thing Jairus did. And so she goes up to him in a very different way. Jairus was able to use his status to go right to the front of the line and implore Jesus for help. She has to sneak up behind him. She has to sneak up behind him. And um, all she wants is a touch. All she wants is a touch. Um, she doesn't want an audience. She doesn't want a conversation. She doesn't even want him to know that she exists. She just wants to be healed. I, I, I travel a lot um, in my job and, and just through the years for various things, and there was, a, there was a time that I was in Chicago and was there for you know, a week or so, a pretty extended period of time, and I was sick. I got, I got pretty sick. And I thought I had strep throat. It was like kind of, that was my guess. So I, f I find my way to an urgent care um, place and I go in and I register and they bring me back and the doctor comes back and this doctor's doing all this like 
conversation, and he's like, dude, whole family history and everything in the world. And I was like, dude, I, leave me alone. Like, give me the test. Give me a prescription, please, so I can get better. I'm not ever going to see you again. You're not my family doctor. Right? I, that's all I wanted was give me the stuff I need to be well, and I'm out of here. Well, that's what this woman was doing to Jesus. She was treating him like a spiritual doc in the box. And, um, and that's why Jesus says, who touched me? Isn't that a funny thing that Jesus does? Who touched me? Right on his face, it's kind of ridiculous, as his disciples point out. Um, his disciples said to him, you know, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched you? They're like, you know, Jesus, we're not exactly social distancing here. There's an enormous crowd. We're all on top of each other. Everybody touched you. Of course, it's not a ridiculous question. Because Jesus, as usual, had an agenda that they, we, don't see. Because when he says, who touched me, he's not asking. The, the Lord and creator of everything that exists, the redeemer and sustainer of all things, is not asking for information. He's disrupting her anonymity. You see? There's no such thing as an anonymous, impersonal, transactional encounter with Jesus. She came to him for physical healing. He knows that she needs so much more than that. And so he stops, and he uses this question to draw her out. Right? To, 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 to turn what she intended as kind of a stealth healing into a transformational encounter. And it works. Because verse 33 tells us that she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I think that little statement gets buried in this big story, but that's interesting to me. The whole, she tells him the whole truth. She poured her heart out to him. She was real with him. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. He welcomes her. This is noteworthy. A well-regarded Jewish rabbi embracing the touch of an unclean woman, taking her impurity on himself so she can become, become clean, but losing his power to give her strength. And also gently, very, very gently correcting her my daughter, your faith has made you well, not your touch has made you well. It's faith. It's your, it's your belief. Right? This is, my power cannot be managed. This is not magic. This is life-changing relationship with the creator and redeemer of all things. And he says, my healing is so much more than physical. which is great, and it's good news until we remember that there was another daughter in danger. 
back to Jairus, back into his shoes. Imagine his anxiety, his impatience. Jesus has agreed to go with him to bring healing to his little daughter, and then he stops in the middle of the trip to his house to help a woman who has suffered for 12 years. Doesn't Jesus know his daughter is imminently dying? Another hour is not going to hurt this woman, but it could kill his daughter, which it does. Um, While he was speaking, there came um, from the ruler's house some people who said, your daughter's dead, Don't don't trouble Jesus anymore. Jesus, if you had only just come first. He could have come back to help this, this lady, right? This is bad triage. Any doctor today would be sued, right? He treated the chronic patient ahead of the acute patient. So, did the great physician commit malpractice? Well, only if our timeline and our urgency and our priorities dictate God's timing. Um, I hesitate to do this, but I feel somewhat compelled to use an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. I apologize in advance if this is overdone but it's just too apt. There's a scene early in the, in the books or the movies, if you've seen it, where uh, the, the hobbit, uh, Frodo, is waiting on Gandalf the wizard to come and arrive at Bilbo's, whatever, 11th, 30th birthday party or whatever it is, and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's checking his watch and he's waiting, he's getting impatient, and finally Gandalf the wizard comes and, and he, Frodo runs up to him and says, you're late. And Gandalf says, A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Friends, in verse 36, when Jesus, after hearing of the death of the little girl, says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. That's what he's saying. He's saying, It looks to you like I'm late, but I'm not late. I'm right on time. Um, So so in other words, Jairus, don't, don't let your own sense of urgency or timing dictate your view of what God is doing. You can't. Right? You don't know what I know. You don't really get all that I came to do. Do not fear. Do not fear. The woman wanted a healing. Your daughter, uh, you want your daughter to, to, be, to be healed as well. And that's, those are good things, but I'm after something bigger, Jesus is essentially saying. I'm, I'm after more. And so he goes on to Jairus's home, and it's a home like so many of ours, and certainly like our world, marked by sickness and death 
and lament. And it says he took his small inner circle with him and um, went into the home, and they went into where the child was laying. And it says, taking her by the hand, he said to her something that I say to my little seven-year-old just about every morning. Little guy, it's time to wake up. Little girl, arise. It's time to wake up. And she did. And it says immediately they were overcome with amazement. No kidding. Right? And now we start to see why Jesus did what he did. We start to understand why he allowed what seems to us and what surely seemed to the people there like an unconscionable delay. He used that time to bless a marginalized woman more than she could possibly imagine. He healed her body, and then in the rich soil of his grace and mercy and love, her superstition blossomed into faith. And her faith made her whole, and Jesus restored her soul as well. And he reminds us that the hurts we feel, the healings we crave, are, are in and of themselves real and legitimate and important, but they're also symptoms of a much bigger need that each and every one of us has. And he reminds us that faith is not transactional. It's not impersonal. And he reminds us that our desires of Jesus are usually far too small. That's the, the, the question I asked you earlier. The, you know, the, how do you answer if only? If only what? If only life was back to normal? If only I had better grades to get into my dream school? If only I could graduate and get a good job. If only I could get a better job or a promotion to have more money, and then that would enable me to do more enjoyable things. If only I had more free time. If only I had a spouse. If only my spouse understood me better. If only my marriage would heal if only we had kids or if only my kids would grow up and leave. <laughs> What's your if only? These are the things we look to to fill us. Things our hearts want. And in and of themselves, they're almost always worthwhile and good things. But Jesus wants us to want more. He, wants to, he, want, he doesn't want people who are comfortable and healthy. He wants transformed, hopeful disciples with, with the vision to see that this world's normal isn't sufficient. That the world's best isn't good enough. 
and that is fully on display with this little girl. The Bible doesn't specifically say this, but I believe that's why he waited. Right? Her father came for a fever cure, and Jesus gave him a resurrection. Right? He, he came to get back to normal, and Jesus opened a window into new creation and showed himself as a savior with life-giving power that is so great that death itself to him is like nothing but sleep. Get up, little girl. It's time to wake up. I bet Jairus woke up. Friends, God's timing will almost always confound us. Sometimes he does throw us into a crisis that demands trust now in the whirlwind of confusion and chaos and pain. Sometimes he delays, and we don't understand why, and the hurt gets worse, and the cracks in a broken creation seem to widen and we, and we don't get it. We don't understand why. But friends, in both instances, we, we, or at least you're like me, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to project my stuff onto you. I tend to ask why. Why, God? Why is a disease ravaging the whole world and killing people? Why? For the love of God. Do we live in a world where it's so easy to murder elementary school kids? Why are good people still caught up in hatred and racism and violence? Why is my marriage still hard after so many years? Why have we tried so hard with our kids and we did everything we thought was right and they're still making unwise and poor choices? Why do I struggle with depression and anxiety? I have every reason to be content. Why did the person I love betray me? Get sick and die? Now, for, for you, friends, there's a way to ask that question in faith. The Psalms do it. Why, O oh Lord? Why do the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer? How long, O oh Lord? How long are you going to put up with the, the obvious injustice that goes on in this good world of yours? Sadly, I usually do it from a different motivation. I usually do it from a sense of entitlement or arrogance. Right? Why, God? I want it, and I want it now. Right? I say to the creator of the world, I see no good reason for delay. Friends, if you do that, when we do that, we will struggle. We'll struggle to feel loved. We'll struggle to really trust God in the midst of, of real brokenness. And it's not because God doesn't love us, and it's not because God is not trustworthy. It's because in our waiting, our impatience has hijacked our faith. And the antidote to that, 
right? The, the, I think the core lesson of this story is in the, in the last verses of this story, the picture of Jesus holding that little girl's hand, raising her from the dead like it's nothing more than waking her from sleep. Friends, hear me. You've heard it earlier. We've sung of it earlier. When, when, when you are Christ's by faith, when our trust is in him and not our own strength and not our own ability to control, not our own goodness or our own sense of timing, that's how loved each and every one of us are. That's how secure our destiny not because circumstances are always great. They're not. Not because we get resolution to problems on our terms and in our schedule. We don't. But because Christ has our hand and holds it with the same life-giving power that healed that woman back to dignity and loved that little girl back to life. Y'all pray with me. Uh, God, give us the kind of faith to trust you in the midst of difficult waiting. God, it's easy to trust when everything's going great. But teach us to, to trust you in a crisis. Teach us to trust you um, when we're mired in what seems like intractable brokenness. Lord, teach us to remember that your timing is not ours. Um, and show us what it means um, to hold faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.